Hello and welcome to Making Tech Better, Made Tech's fortnightly podcast bringing you content from all over the world on how to improve your software delivery. My name is Claire Sudbury, my pronouns are she and her, and I am a lead engineer at Made Tech. Tech, we're very focused on the users of the software that we build. So I was very excited to be able to speak to Jonathan Hassel, who's an expert in digital accessibility. On Wednesday, the 28th of July, 2021, I spoke to Jonathan with the aim of honouring Disability Awareness Day, which is actually on the 15th of August, which is a Sunday, but this episode will be published two days later on the 17th, because we always publish our episodes on Tuesdays. Hello, Jonathan. Hi, Claire. Delighted to be with you. Fantastic. Jonathan is an expert in digital accessibility, and that's why we're speaking to him today. So I'm going to leap straight in with the first question that I ask everybody, which is who in the IT industry are you inspired by? There's a guy called Mark Webb. I met him a couple of years ago, just before lockdown happened. I was introducing him at a panel at a diversity and inclusion event. He works for Shift MS. They're a charity for uh, a community for people with multiple sclerosis. And one of the things I love about Mark is that he's so positive. He's the, the positive story that I kind of I tell everybody. He didn't start off with that particular condition or it certainly worsened. And he tells it brilliantly himself but whilst he was at Dixon's Carphone quite high up there his MS developed and he has a whole um, story about how he moved into social media actually because of that and all of the changes that were, were needed for his job so the story is amazing you can find it on our website but also he's doing a huge amount to actually take disability and accessibility into the world of PR and marketing which is one of the most important worlds because they're the people who communicate with us all of the time. So uh, yeah, Mark Webb, check out his uh, Disability at the Table podcast. It's absolutely awesome. Um, And I'm not just saying that because I was his first guest, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) Brilliant. I love it. Okay. So you have a whole career in accessibility and digital accessibility. You run a company. How did you get to this point? Why is this the thing that, that you're devoting your life to? So a couple of things happened at the same time around about the turn of the century. First one was my nephew, Carl, was born with spina bifida. That's the condition that he has. That means that he uses a wheelchair. He plays a lot of wheelchair basketball, for example. But like a lot of people with a disability, his condition actually impacts a number of things. So yeah, he uses a wheelchair. He has a slight learning um, delay. Um, He's also slightly autistic. So I knew, if you like, the world of disability. Pretty much bang on the same time I started a job at the BBC. And so my job was editor of Standards and Guidelines. My job was to try and work out what good quality was for the BBC's websites, mobile apps, red button services, iPlayer, all of that sort of stuff. And actually, literally my first week, my boss came to me and said, the BBC has always cared about disability, subtitles on TV, that sort of thing. In the world of digital, we need to be as good for people who are paying their license fee. And it's your job to work out what good looks like and to explain it to uh, everybody who was working on the 400 websites. So many different mobile apps, so many different things that we were doing, how 
did all of those get good? And as a result of that, I was asked to uh, chair a committee for the British Standards Institute to come up with a British standard for how to do that. So I pulled together a lot of people from not just the BBC, but lots of disability charities, lots of organisations in the UK who had been on this journey of how to get good at accessibility. And, you know, it was a great, great ride at the BBC for 10 years. We really did get good. So the last thing was publishing the British Standard, the S8878 in 2010, at which point I felt my job was done there, really. And so it was a good time to move on. That's when I set up Hassle Inclusion to try and help lots of other companies go on that same journey. Fantastic. That's a great story. I love it. So digital accessibility is such a big topic. There are so many different things to think about with digital accessibility. But what are the biggest misconceptions? One of the first things I did when I started Hassle Inclusion was come up with an accessibility myths blog. And actually, I think we had 16 in there. So cutting that down, the two things that I would really want to say, number one is most people think accessibility is about disabled people. And that's it. Mm -hmm. And it isn't really. You know, it's as much about my mum, who is 80, who doesn't consider herself to have a disability. And yet she's got dry eyes. So she's not blind, but her sight is degrading over time. So she can't read a book because she can't read the words very well. So number one, accessibility is not just about people with disabilities. It's older people. Actually, it's me when I'm cooking. Mm. When I'm sort of trying to make a chicken curry and I'm cutting up chicken and the music that's playing in the background is not the track I want. So I say, you know, hey, Alexa, next track. Yeah. So I don't have a disability myself at the moment, but sometimes I'm doing something else with my hands or my eyes or whatever. So really important, it's not just 20% of the population who have a disability. It's not even just 40% of the population, that 20% with a disability and 20% who are older. But it's actually everybody. We all need this stuff because we want to use technology the way we want to use it whenever we're using it. So I would say that's number one. And number two, hopefully that gives people a, a bigger understanding of why this is so important. And the big thing is that most people over time have kind of figured that accessibility was only important because they didn't want to be sued. Mm. The Equality Act here in the UK, the Americans with Disabilities Act in the States, all of these different things. If you don't do accessibility, you know, a disabled person is going to sue you. That doesn't make anybody kind of come alive and say, yay, you know, I really want to do that. <laughs> it's actually about people. There are so many benefits that can come from getting this right, rather than, if you like, just the benefit of sleeping better at night because you know you're not going to be sued if you get this right you make more money as a business yeah that's the way it works fantastic i love that okay so when you start thinking about accessibility there are so many different ways in which you can make a product accessible and there are so many different ways in which a product might be inaccessible mm. to different people for different reasons and sometimes when you start considering all of the different requirements that people might have it can seem overwhelming and you can even find yourself in a situation where in order to make a product more accessible for 
for one set of people, you might actually be making it less accessible for another set of people. So, for instance, there's more than one kind of colour blindness. There's more than one set of colours that are problematic for different users. Or people who have hearing impairments will have very different requirements to people who are partially sighted. How do you cater for all of those conflicting requirements? So it's a great question, really insightful. The answer is a couple of things, really. The first thing is that where you have conflict, it's really important to think about how many people have each of those different uh, choices. I'll give you the easiest thing for most people to understand. Color. What colors do I want my website to look like? If my site is going, I want my website to look like Heathrow Airport signs, you know, high visibility, stuff that everybody can see from a long way away because the colors are really contrasty. So for people with a vision difficulty, that's really good. Black background, yellow, really, really bright text on it. I'm guessing that most companies don't think that's a great look for their brand. Mm -hmm. But even if it wasn't just the company saying, I don't like that for our brand, if we take the other side of things, so people who are dyslexic, they like pastel colors. They like the complete reverse to that. If you give them black text on a white background, they can have headaches because things are too contrasty for them. So we have two different, if you like, extreme cases there, and then companies, brand departments that sit in the middle going, well, what are we supposed to do about that then? You know, we want our brand to have all of our brand values and appeal to all of the people out there. And you're kind of saying we can't. Mm, that sucks. <laughs> so one of the things you can do is you can say, well, we are going to care for one of those groups of people and not the other one. And kind of unfortunately, that's what WCAG, the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines, does. When WCAG was being created, there were loads of people in the room who were putting their hand up for the needs of people with a vision impairment. Uh, the people who were representing people who are neurodiverse, so people who are dyslexic or have autism, those sorts of things, if you like, weren't invited to the party. So yeah, one way you could do it is to say, we're just gonna care about these people, not those people. The other way is you can say, we're gonna look at stats. You know, how many people have that difficulty with, with vision? That's around about sort of like 1.6 million people in the UK. Compare that to the number of people who are autistic or dyslexic. Actually, that's, you know, more like 6 million. So actually, if we can't give everybody what they want, let's go to where the most people are. Mm-hmm. Third way is the best way, which is personalization. If you've done any user testing of a product and you've done personas and all of those sorts of things in usability, what you'll know is that lots of different people want different things from the same website. Yeah. Can be because they have a disability or it could be because they're a somebody who doesn't have very much time. We all want something slightly different. I want design for me. Yeah. And so do you. And so does every single other person. And the only way you're going to get designed for me is personalization. I want the computer to know something about me and to use that to make my experience better. And that's the same thing, really, for people with a disability. It just so happens that their needs are less understood and more extreme than everyone else. 
So does that mean that, you know, going back to the example before about high contrast or low contrast, that you might need to say to people, you know what, if you need high contrast, you can press this button here and you will actually get a different look to this site. Yeah, absolutely. So when I was at the BBC, I did about three quarters of a million pounds of research on that. And it really is the case that people want different things. The ability to say, okay, you can have what you want is really important. The only difficulty and the thing that I would need to be really careful of here is that there are a number of companies um, out there who claim to fix the accessibility of your website for free. You don't need to get good at accessibility. You don't need to learn how to do it and get it right. You can get it wrong and then you can put their thing on your website. They normally call it an overlay or a template. So these are companies like Accessibility. Now the tool that they have to personalize is great. Unfortunately, the idea that you can kind of like make something awful and then get artificial intelligence to fix it all has a huge number of problems. For example, the National Federation of Blind People have come out quite recently saying that these things are actively bad for blind people. So I would suggest that if anybody is interested in kind of personalization, have a chat with us before spending loads of money on a tool that uh, you think might be your you know, salvation when it comes to accessibility, but actually might get you into even more trouble. Yeah, these things have to be baked in, don't they? So, you know, as a software engineer myself, as soon as we started talking about being able to give people a choice between what kind of contrast they see on the screen, I'm starting to think, okay, you need to be able to have different skins. And then I'm instantly thinking, well, in that case, you need really clear separation between the presentation and the functionality. Absolutely. Which means that your software needs to be well designed. I completely agree with you. And if you like what we're both saying is that making a website is not a simple task. Yeah. You know, there's a whole team that come together. And if all of that team know what they're doing when it comes to accessibility, things are great. If a designer gets something wrong, then that's problematic. If a developer gets something wrong, that's problematic. But assuming that all of their jobs are so simple that some artificial intelligence can come along and sort of like fix everything at the end, it's kind of a little bit like what was happening in the kind of like the 1980s in the car industry, where they would have this kind of shed at the end. So the production line would go through and they wouldn't be testing things as it went through. And then the car that would come out the other end would then effectively be fixed in the shed mm -hmm. because there were so many things wrong with it. Yeah. Toyota came along and said, that's just crazy. Why are you making it bad and then trying <laughs> to fix it at the end? That is the most inefficient process ever. Mm -hmm. What you really want is everybody who's making that car to know what they're doing and to be testing their bit of what they did at that state of production line all the way through. That's what efficiency looks like. It's not, let's get it wrong and then let's hope that we can kind of fix it in the end. That's not the way digital works. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. You talked about things moving on the page and I instantly thought of newspaper sites and it absolutely boggles my mind that their websites are horrendous. They're so horrible. You know, you're trying to find just a piece of information or find out about a news item. And what you're faced with is the information that you care about is taking up a very small portion of the screen. And everything else on the screen are these horrible adverts. There are videos, there are moving adverts, there are scrolling adverts. I don't really understand. I mean, I obviously, 
it's all about the advertising. The stuff that's distracting you is is all advertising and clickbait. So I can see why they do it from that perspective. But it's such an unpleasant experience for just any user, never mind whether you have any special requirements. It must be an absolute nightmare from accessibility terms. Yeah. I mean, just to give you a really specific thing, because we did a lot of user research for the National Autistic Society a few years ago to try and work out what works and what doesn't work when it comes to digital. Uh, Because, as I said previously, a lot of people who are neurodiverse weren't really consulted when it came to WCAG. So a lot of their needs really aren't in there. And also, especially when it comes to people who are autistic, it's a spectrum. So not everybody who's autistic agrees with what is good and what is bad. So we asked 400 people a a survey. We then brought about 20 uh, of them into focus groups. And actually some of the things we showed them were exactly what you're talking about. So we showed them articles from that day on the BBC website, The Guardian and The Daily Mail. And, you know, the Daily Mail and The Guardian, because they have adverts, because they need to have adverts, because it's a really difficult business to be in the journalism business at the moment, Mm -hmm. were an experience that the people we were speaking to really didn't like. You know, the Daily Mail is dreadful. It's almost like, you know, if you want to know what not to do from a usability or accessibility perspective, that's the Daily Mail. It's that videos, there was a a lack of white space, they crammed as much as as humanly possible onto the screen. So it was distracting, overwhelming. It was all of the things that a lot of people just really dislike. If you compare that, for example, to the BBC, which has, if you like, the luxury in these days of the license fee, so they don't have to put adverts on there. Everything is a lot calmer. You don't get distracted. Things like the use of white space, the use of character, kind of spacing and line spacing, especially how long paragraphs are, all of these sorts of things are better done. So you have to balance these things. Mm. You know, I'm not saying the Daily Mail is wrong. I'm saying that a lot of people I know really don't like it, but it feels like they're going after a different audience, if you like. Yeah. And the great thing about news is that you can get it from a lot of different sources. So yeah. But the other thing was the level of information, you know, that not just the populism, but actually the reading age. So this is the sort of place where the Daily Mail potentially has it over on the other guys, mm. because the Guardian is kind of thinking highbrow, whereas the average reading age in the UK is 11. Mm. So, and actually, if you really want to know how to get across information in a simple way, go to the Sun, because they really know how to write a very good headline. So. I'm delighted that we've got a multiplicity of ways of getting information. But I guess the key thing that I would say from an accessibility perspective is if people want your information and they can't get it because the way you're presenting it is not what they need, Mm -hmm. then thinking a little bit more about if you could with a few things changed, actually get more of that audience on site, you would actually have more subscribers, make more money. That's fascinating to me because a journey that I'm currently on myself is that I'm, you know, more and more coming to the conclusion that I'm probably autistic. And so that thing of being overwhelmed by unnecessary detail, Mm. easily distracted by just too much information on the page, that may well be relevant. But it seems to me there must be lots of people who would struggle with that. But also general kind of understanding 
understanding about web design is that you don't want your page to be too cluttered. But every time I visit one of these sites, I think, well, it must work in some way or they wouldn't be doing it. So I guess what you're saying is in that sense, there's been a trade-off and the trade-off is that we care more about advertising. It makes more of an impact to our business than these other considerations. So that's the thing that we are prioritizing. Nobody makes a website to try and keep out 20, 40% of the potential people using it. Nobody would actively do that. But the difficulties uh, come in the trade-off. So I want to use that new technology. Um, and unfortunately, the people who created the new technology haven't made it accessible yet. Yeah. And there is no other option. So I either don't do that cool new thing on my website because 20% of the audience can't use it, or I do it hoping that the world will get better over time. Or, you know, how much time have I got to test things? You know, I just need to get my product out there right now. These are the key realities of what digital is all about. So everything that I've done in the accessibility sphere and taking that British standard through to the international standard, so ISO 30071 part one, is to try and help actually, not the technical people so much, but it's actually to help the people who own the product or the people who are doing the, the resource management and the budgets for it. How do we make decisions in those really tough points where you can't do A and B and you have to make a choice or you have to work out how far do we go? How far is enough? Yeah. There hasn't really been enough information out there that actually says these things are cheap. These things in accessibility are unbelievably expensive. Yeah. These things are theoretically great, but we can't do them yet. Everything that we do at Hassle Inclusion is to try and help organizations tackle those sorts of real-world resource budget constraint-type issues in a way that actually understands the sort of users they may have and understands the sort of business models they may have and tries to get them to a sweet spot where everybody wins. That's what we're looking for always. While I've got your attention, let me tell you a bit about Made Tech. After 21 years in the industry, I'm quite choosy about who I'll work for. Made Tech are software delivery experts with high technical standards. We work almost exclusively with the public sector. We have an open source employee handbook on GitHub, which I love. We have unlimited annual leave. But what I love most about Made Tech is the people. They've got such passion for making a difference and they really care for each other. Our Twitter handle is MadeTech, that's M-A-D-E-T-E-C-H. We have free books available on our website at madetech.com slash resources slash books. And we're currently recruiting in London, Bristol, South Wales and the north of England via our Manchester office. If you go to madetech.com slash careers, you can find out more about that. Here's a quick reminder that before the break, we were saying it's important to be aware that there will be trade-offs when considering digital accessibility. 
it's easy to be overwhelmed by the volume of different accessibility requirements. Mm. And so clearly people do have to make trade-offs. So how do you make those decisions? And, and are there any obvious certain types of ways that you can make digital products accessible, which will be quick and easy and cheap? Yeah, anecdotally, just to be really kind of concrete for a while, if you're a designer, get your color contrast right is always a good idea. You know, that one, you can find a tool for free, just put in color contrast analyzer into Google and you've got a tool that helps you with that. It costs you nothing and it doesn't take long either until you need to change something in the brand and that can take a very long time. And so just quickly, because we spoke about contrast earlier and we said that different people have different contrast needs. Sure. So those color contrast analyzers, what kind of thing are they considering? So they're considering the stuff that's there in the guidelines. Right. So they're not so good for, for people who are neurodiverse. What tends to happen is people who have a vision impairment were really, really politically proactive in saying, if you don't give us what we want, you know, that's wrong and we're going to be locked out of society. So we need a law and some guidelines on our side to make sure that doesn't happen. Yeah. And if you don't get it right, we're going to come after you and we're going to sue you. I seem to collect best friends who are dyslexic and most of them don't really want anybody to know about it. Yes. So they're not going to sue you. Mm -hmm. And because they're not going to sue, most people have completely forgotten that they even exist or that they have a particular point of view or preference. Mm. The good thing, you know, made by dyslexia.com, you know, Richard Branson, Kira Knightley, a lot of great stuff is actually coming out into the media now. My Apple News has been showing me a really great article about someone with ADHD talking about their experience. A lot of people who are autistic are more comfortable actually saying this is the way I look at the world and this is what I like and this is what I don't like. Yeah. For me, saying, well, they're not there in the guidelines and they're not going to sue me yeah. actually doesn't make any uh, commercial sense. So I would I would really encourage organizations to, yeah, start with the guidelines mm -hmm. and then actually go with the people. Start getting your color contrast right. Things like Hemingway app, put the text into there and see what age you would need to be to actually read this, mm -hmm. you know, is your information too complicated? Yeah. And you spoke about modern technologies sometimes causing problems. So people want the latest technology, mm -hmm. but because it's brand new, it may not yet be totally accessible. In the public sector, people are encouraged not to build JavaScript into their websites. Mm -hmm. And part of that is around accessibility. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I want to know what year we're in personally. <laughs> so we are in 2021. Yeah. Yeah. So there is a streak of what I would term Ludditism mm. that has been in accessibility for ages. And it actually has very little to do with users and all to do with tech geeks. The idea that the web should be sort of confined to what it was sort of 10 years ago, 15 years ago, when it was just a simple means of here's some information and, and the most complicated interactive thing is a form is stupid from my perspective. And actually, it's not good for accessibility either. If we look at people who don't like JavaScript, in general, they are people who are blind to use a screen reader. Yeah. And so things that get too complicated interactively because they can't see it is really difficult. And they have been, if you like, dictating a lot of the accessibility agenda. If you then think about people who don't like words because they can't read them, you know, is, is a video more or less accessible than text? 
Well, for most people in the universe, it's more accessible. Yeah. But if you look at WCAG, they make you think that video is kind of almost evil. Mm. Whereas what I would suggest is don't be constrained by guidelines, be constrained by our imagination and our understanding of who our audience is and what we can do to give them a great experience. Yeah. There is nothing wrong with JavaScript. Absolutely nothing wrong. Interesting. Thank you. Because I know that one of the arguments about JavaScript is that sometimes it can be harder to access a site that's using JavaScript if you're in a place with poor internet. So on a train is the obvious one. And again, that could be anybody. And one of the arguments is that if your site relies on JavaScript, then that can take longer to download and it can be more of an issue. So you've conflated two things together there in my mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what you're talking about is page weight Mm -hmm. and how long something will take to load. But I mean, my gut is that the the stuff that I would, if you like, be completely in agreement with you that we need to get rid of JavaScript is people using JavaScript libraries when they don't need to. Yes. So overuse of JavaScript without reason. Yeah, absolutely. But at the same time, most people who are trying to do stuff on the web in a startup, in a small company or whatever, the only way that they can use it is because they piggyback on somebody else's components, whether it's WordPress, AngularJS, React, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. These are ways of getting cool things happening on the web quickly. And that's okay. We just need to make sure that we do it thoughtfully. Yeah. And accessibility doesn't get forgotten. Yeah. So what would your top three pieces of advice be to somebody who wants to make sure that their product, their digital product is accessible? So number one, I'm going to start from a managerial perspective, which is uh, know your audience and also know your products. So, you know, who's going to be using this thing? And are we just talking about your website or are we talking about your intranet? Are we talking about your mobile app? Just making one of those things accessible and forgetting about the other one gives people a really bad experience. So have consistency of experience. It's number one. That's, if you like, for the product managers. I think there's loads of things that developers need to do. You know, you guys have got it hardest because there's a lot of technical stuff. Just simple things like keyboard accessibility is probably where I would start because anybody can test it as well because mm. everyone's got a keyboard. Literally press the tab key on your keyboard on the website and see what happens. If you can see the little kind of indicator going all the way through and if it makes sense to you, then chances are you've got it right. If it disappears at any point, then there is a problem there. And the problem is, chances are uh, somebody coded that element wrongly. Mm -hmm. I say content authors, check your reading level, designers, uh, simplicity, try and make sure that the page just doesn't have too much on it. And there is good kind of space for things to breathe, you know, get your colors right, but also be consistent. So, you know, make sure that your navigation doesn't change between pages. Most people get this sort of stuff right these days. But I think in general, the last thing I would say is that if you are using one of those quick ways uh, of getting you to the website you want, whether it's a JavaScript library, a content management system, or for that matter, just a full software as a service product that you've kind of bespoke. Is that an okay thing to do? You know, have the people who created that thing done the accessibility so that you can rely on it? Because if they haven't, then if you test that thing, the problem is you can't fix it. Yeah. So just understand 
that the tools that you use to short circuit your route to a good website actually have accessibility baked in already. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Thank you. It's bothering me that we've barely talked about colourblindness because it, it runs in my family. So um, my father and son are both colourblind. And I, I think, I'm sure you will know better than me, I think I remember the figure 8% being quoted. Yeah. And, and normally it's men for some reason that we don't know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you know. Yeah. Tell me. It's all about X, X and Y chromosomes. It lives on the X chromosome. Women have two X's and men have an X and a Y. So in the case of a man, if the X chromosome that they have carries the colorblind gene, then that means that they will be colorblind. Mm -hmm. In the case of a woman, if one of your X's carries the gene, mm -hmm. then as long as the other one doesn't, the other one will dominate. And so you won't be colorblind. So in my case, I have two X's, one from my mother and one from my father. Mm -hmm. The one that comes from my father carries the colorblind gene because my father is colorblind. But the one that comes from my mother doesn't, so I'm not colorblind. But for both of my sons, they had a 50-50 chance because I was going to give them one of my exes. The question was, which one? Would they get my mum's ex or my dad's ex? And it turns out that one of my sons got my mum's ex and one of my sons got my dad's ex. So one of my sons is colorblind and the other one isn't. So there you go. <laughs> That's very cool. Uh, you see, you come on these things to learn and that includes me. Uh, thank you. That, that was a really well described. And it is a lot of people. The figures are around about eight or 9% of, of people who are colorblind. So just touching a little on that for a second, people should understand that when they are using color. That's the key thing. It's really important that people get that, you know, red, yellow, and green. So red, green, colorblindness, the most common one. But the reason we don't have accidents all of the time at traffic lights is because if you can't tell the difference between the colors, you still know that you stop if the one at the top is lit. Yes. You go the one at the bottom. So if they all look yellow, you can still get the information. That's the thing that people need to get yes. when it comes to conveying information is if you take the colour away, are you clueless or is nothing missed other than the fact that it looks a little less pretty? Exactly. That's what people need to know. And there are tools you can use to check your colours. Mm. But as you say, if you give other information besides colour, so if you use shape and texture as well as colour, mm -hmm. then exactly what you say. Think if you took the colour away, would this diagram still be meaningful? Yeah. And the worst thing for people who have a colour deficiency... Apologies, I call it colorblind. I know that people don't like to use that term anymore. It's simply because my father has always called it that. But to people who have a color deficiency, it has a massive impact on them in places like schools. So in geography, my poor son is still given maps to look at and charts and asked to draw conclusions based purely on shaded regions, which he isn't able to do because he can't tell the difference between two adjacent colors, which other people think are different. And he doesn't. And that, to me, is what discrimination looks like. Yes. That is horrific, that the teachers aren't aware. That's what it's all about, really. You know, we do, I think, have a responsibility, anybody who is communicating, to try and make sure that as many people are able to get what we're doing. That's why I agreed to come on your podcast. The first thing I did was I checked to see if there was a transcript. And there is. <laughs> and there is. You do them all of the time. And they're really good because I've read quite a few of them. So actually, again, these things are responsibilities, but they're also opportunities. Yeah. You know, so you 
you're going to ask me a question in a minute about true or untrue. That's right. And I wanted to know what other people had kind of said. If I had to listen all the way through to actually try and find that bit of information, it would have taken me about 15 minutes. I downloaded transcripts, did a find on the Word file, and I found that information in less than kind of 30 seconds. Yeah. That's good communication as well as good accessibility. Mm, mm -hmm. You know, that's what comes through. When you get good at this, it, it has so many, if you like, side benefits. Yeah. 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 Well, I'm very glad that you noticed our transcripts because it was very important to me that we didn't launch the podcast until we were certain that we were going to have good quality transcripts for, for every episode. So fantastic. I'm glad you noticed. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I am now going to ask you to tell me one thing that's true about you and one thing that's untrue, as, as I ask all of our guests. Sure. So I, I thought I thought I'd go thematic. So I love travel. And obviously, like most people, have just not been able to for the last year or so. And I'm watching the Olympics at the moment in Japan and just loving it really so two things about Japan and me traveling to Japan one true one untrue so the first thing the first time I went to Japan was to pick up the Japan prize from their national broadcaster for a product that we did to help people who use the Makaton sign language mm, okay so that's the first thing the second thing is the first time I went to Japan was to sign off the international standard ISO 30071 part one that I spent most of last decade working on. So one of those is true, one of those is false. Mm, fantastic. Okay, so what is the best thing that's happened to you in the last month or so? It can be either work-related or non-work-related. So I thought about it long and hard. And actually, um, what I'm going to pick is the launch of HiHub. So ever since COVID, we've really understood that a lot of organizations who don't really know very much about accessibility at all, maybe don't actually have uh, particular kind of resources to devote to it. They really need to get this stuff right now because, mm -hmm. you know, everyone was working from home, everyone was shopping from home. Yeah. We started doing webinars, free webinars every month. And everyone kept on asking, you know, oh, that was so good. Can we have the video or whatever? HiHub is our resource that has an archive of all of the videos that we've been doing for the last year. It's got a lot of information in there as well about how to get buy-in for accessibility in the organization you work for. So a lot of people come to us and they say, how do I get my boss to allow me to do this? Mm -hmm. And that's the key thing. So HiHub is really designed to try and help people with loads of free information so that they can get good at this because it's really needed now. Fantastic. And I, I often forget to say, actually, the reason I ask that question at the end of the podcast is just because I want to end on a high. I want to mm, end with yeah. a feeling of positivity. So that that's great to hear about. And then the very last question is, where can people find you? And is there anything you want to plug? Sure. So hassleinclusion.com. So I'll spell out in, just in case people uh, don't know the particular spelling of my surname. H-A-S-S-E-L-L-I-N-C-L-U-S-I-O-N. So hassleinclusion.com. You can find me and all the rest of my crew there. Anything I want to plug? Um, I would, you know, we really do mean it when we say we want people to get good at this. And we don't want there to be, if you like, as many barriers. Uh, accessibility can be expensive. So here's, here's another free thing. I wrote two books to explain the international standard that I, I spent so long working on because the standard itself is quite 
complicated and the books enable you to understand how to get all of that right. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to send you a link so you can put it in the in the transcripts and in the notes for this podcast. People click on the link, it will take them through to a page that can put in their email and we will send them uh, a free copy of, I've got two books, so we're going to send the one on products, so digital products. It basically says, this is how to get your product team so that they can do this accessibility thing in a really efficient way. The sort of stuff that we've been talking about. Fantastic. So yeah, if people would like to, you know, I don't need any money. All I need is for people to download the book and use it really, because that's what we're all about. Wonderful. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you for speaking to me, Jonathan. It's been great. I've really enjoyed it. It's been a pleasure. I've really enjoyed it too. Thank you. As always, to help you digest what you've just heard, I'm going to attempt to summarise it. Accessibility isn't just about disabled people. We all need this stuff because we want to use technology the way we want to use it whenever we're using it. And you shouldn't be considering accessibility just because you're worried about being sued. It's about paying attention to your customers, and ultimately this is how to be an effective business. Sometimes you might find you have conflict between the needs of different users. For instance, high contrast is good for people with impaired vision, but bad for people who are dyslexic. Be aware that the WCAG guidelines tend to be skewed towards those with impaired vision and doesn't take so much notice of people who are dyslexic. When you do have conflicts between the needs of different users, ask the question, how many people have each of the different challenges? But even better, offer personalization. Do be wary of products that claim to fix your accessibility after the fact. They rarely work, and it's much better to bake flexibility in from the start. Don't assume complex language will be appropriate for all users. Don't assume that you should have any written words at all. Videos can also be very effective. The key thing is to do everything you can to make sure that everyone can access the info you're trying to convey. When making decisions about how to build in digital accessibility, you'll find that sometimes you have to make conscious trade-offs. Think about the situation that you're in. What are your constraints? What's your budget? Who are your users? And what's your business model? When trying to make your digital products more accessible, one of the simplest things that you can focus on is colour contrast. You can also use things like the Hemingway app to check reading age. Another thing you can look at is keyboard accessibility. Check the tab order. Be aware of screen readers, which some of your users may need to use. But above all, be consistent across all of your products. When using third-party products and libraries, choose those that have already done the hard work for you where accessibility is concerned. When making colour choices, don't rely on colour alone to convey meaning. You can also use shape, texture, and position. Whenever there is an audio component, don't assume that people will be able to hear. Provide transcripts as well. With all your accessibility requirements, start with the guidelines and then speak to your users. Okay, that's the end of Jonathan's segment, but don't go yet, stick around for extra content. Every other episode, this last short segment will be devoted to story time. Storytelling is useful for teaching, for unlocking empathy, and for creating a sense of shared connection and trust in your teams. 
I love telling stories to both children and adults. I'm actually a lapsed member of the UK Society for Storytelling. So the plan is that I'm going to be using stories to illustrate various points about effective software development. This story time is a little unusual, so I think it deserves a bit of extra explanation. This was originally recorded for our Women in Engineering Day episode, but we ended up not having room for it. And it's all about what it feels like to be a woman working in an all-male environment and how much we can end up changing in order to fit in. So, Today, our story comes from Ludovin Sio, who looks after service delivery operations in Maytech's London market. Hello, Lou. Hi, Claire. So after college, in your first job, you were in an all-male environment, is that correct? Yes. So my first job as a software engineer in London was with a team of 10 male colleagues, some from the US, uh, some from the UK. And the first day I joined, I learned immediately that the social that they were having every week uh, was going to a, a strip club in Soho. So, <laughs> <laughs> Okay. And how did you handle that? How did you react to that? I don't think I was shocked for some reason. Um, and I tried to tag along or to ask to tag along. Uh, but they dropped their social pretty quickly when I arrived. Mm. Yeah. But you felt as though you should tag along. Did you want to? Did you have any particular desire to go to a strip club or was it just because you wanted to fit in? Uh, I think I was curious to some part. I can't deny that. Mm -hmm. I still haven't been, so I'm still curious of how gritty that is. But also, yes, I, I, I wanted to, to be there when they were having fun. I, I wanted to, to laugh along and, and go on night out with my colleagues and bond and, and get to know them. So for sure, it was just a desire to not be left aside. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and how do you feel about that, about the idea of, you know, having to go to a strip club in order to fit in with your colleagues? Oh, I'm pretty sure that would be very awkward and and very uncomfortable now. Um, that is not, I, I wouldn't even, even ask about it. I would, I would completely dismiss the idea. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so... We've talked about the fact that you have probably changed in order to fit in with a male environment. So how do you feel about women that don't, that don't change at all and don't try to fit in? So I'm not sure what that looks like, actually. Mm. And, and I'm, I still don't quite understand how much that changed me and, and how much that was just me genuinely getting along with the boys uh, because of my um, my inherent character. Maybe I'm, I'm, I was boyish to start with, mm. but I know that I, I have sometimes some bias against girlish women, mm -hmm. which is a, a bad word in itself already, saying girlish and, and boyish. What does that mean anymore? Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's really strange. Mm. So I try to catch myself when that happens. Mm -hmm. I know that something that I've experienced is that I have, and this is, that I, even saying it feels ridiculous, but I have walked into a room for a meeting and the room has contained people that I don't know. And one of the people in the room is not just female, but stereotypically female. So wearing makeup, maybe, or, or heels. And I have assumed that that woman was there in an administrative role. 
that she wasn't technical staff. And what I've realized is that I have an idea that I'm totally used to seeing women in technical roles, but I assume they look a certain way and behave a certain way. And if they look stereotypically feminine, then I assume they're not technical. Have you ever felt like that? Yes. Yeah, I I completely feel what you're saying. And maybe that's one way I, I changed myself when I was in engineering school is defeminizing myself. Mm, Yeah. And there's actually some really interesting stuff about this in a book called Delusions of Gender by Cordelia Fine, which is a fantastic book. I highly recommend it. And she talks about when women work in male-dominated environments, they will change their behavior to fit in. They will become more stereotypically masculine and less stereotypically feminine. And they don't even know they're doing it because it is a natural thing that human beings do. We will change to fit the group that we're in. And because this is a male-dominated industry, obviously it's going to be really common that the women that work in it do that. And so then that creates a new stereotype in our head that we when we see stereotypically female women we assume that they're not technical oh that's interesting that's a self-feeding circle yeah Mm, yeah okay this was really interesting thank you so much for talking to me thank you claire hi i'm jack Maytech's events coordinator. Now, working in the public sector means that at Maytech, we really care about making a difference. So for this final Making Life Better segment, myself and my colleagues will be sharing small pieces of advice to make the world a better place. Today's advice comes from me on helping people who are struggling. Don't aim to solve a person's problem. Ask instead what they need from you. When someone's struggling with their work or their life or anything in between, they're often not looking to others for a solution. If someone is sharing their feelings with you, they're not necessarily asking you to fix their problems and very often you won't be able to. However, reminding that person that you are willing to help in any way at your disposal is incredibly reassuring. This can be done as easily as asking, what is there I can do to make this problem easier on you? I've found that this will at the very least serve as a reminder that they are not facing their problems alone, that they have you, someone who's willing to put in the effort in their corner, making it a problem shared which is a problem halved. That's all from me. Have a good one. And that's the end of another episode. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do leave us ratings and reviews because it pushes us up the directories and makes it easier for other people to find us. Speaking of which, thank you to two more reviewers on the Apple platform, Scott Edwards, who finds the podcast particularly relevant for public sector work, and Mushroom Cat, who likes to listen every morning before stand-up and particularly enjoyed the Dave Rogers episode. I've got a few talks coming up. You can see the details on my events page on Medium, which is linked to from my Twitter profile. And you can find that at Claire Sudbury, which is probably not spelt the way that you think. There's no I in Claire and Sudbury is spelt E-R-Y at the end, the same as surgery or carvery. You can find Made Tech on Twitter at M-A-D-E-T-E-C-H and do come and say hello. We're very interested to hear your feedback and any suggestions you have for any content for future episodes or just to come and have a chat. 
Thank you to Rose, our editor, Gina Cady, our virtual assistant, Viv Andrews, our transcriber, Richard Murray for the music, there's a link in the description, and to the rest of our internal MedTech team, Kyle Chapman, Jack Harrison, Carson Robb, and Lara Plaga. Also in the description is a link for subscribing to our newsletter. We publish new episodes every fortnight on Tuesday mornings. Thank you for listening and goodbye.